PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk with Tim Palmer about his book, Yakagani, Appalachian River. This week on PA Books, Tim Palmer, author of Yakagani. Tim Palmer is the author of the book, Yakagani, Appalachian River. Tim, where does Yakagani River flow? The Yakagani is a river of southwestern Pennsylvania. It actually begins a little tiny piece of the watershed in West Virginia on Backbone Mountain, which is the eastern continental divide. The, the east side of that mountain flows into the Potomac River and ultimately the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic and the west side flows into the Yakagani, and then the Monongahela, and then the Ohio, Mississippi, and Gulf of Mexico. So the, the river is down there in the southwestern corner. Uh, you know, Uniontown is one of the big cities nearby. The towns along the river are Oakland, Maryland, Confluence, Pennsylvania, Connellsville is the biggest town. And then on down through smaller towns like Dawson and Smithton and uh, Versailles, and ultimately McKeesport, where the river ends, just 10 miles from Pittsburgh. If we were to fly over the river from its source to where it enters the Monongahela, what would we see? What does the landscape look like? Well, I would love to do that. <laughs> I never had the chance to do that. I've boated it, and I've driven it, and I've bicycled a whole lot of it. But to fly, uh, it would be just fascinating. You know, you'd, again, you'd start at Backbone, and at that point, you're in what the geographers call the Ridgen Valley province of the Appalachian Mountains. So there are these elegant, beautiful, uh, absolutely parallel ridge lines that have been pushed up by tectonic forces going back 300 million years to the original formation of North America. There are about 15 of these ridges, and they trended a north east-southwest direction. And Backbone is the first one in the Yakageni watershed, and then others follow. The final two are Laurel Hill and Chestnut Ridge, which are real landmarks of southwestern Pennsylvania. And then that Ridge and Valley province kind of coasts out with foothills of the Allegheny Plateau or the kind of Appalachian foothills down to the Mon, to the Mon Monongahela River. So flying over, we'd see mostly a forested landscape for the first half of the watershed, these elegant ridges with valleys in between, and then a whole lot of more jumbled foothills with the river, river winding among them, uh, and a mixture of small towns and farmland and strip mines and whatnot down to McKeesport. Now you write in the book that uh, geologists say that, that this area was south of the equator at one point. 
and yep. that the river itself is an antecedent river, that it was there before the mountains were there. Can you talk about the geology of that area? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. The, uh, so I mentioned those mountains came up back to as long as 300 million years ago. The river was already on its essential route at that time. And as the mountains rose up, the river continued to cross cut down through them. This is what geographers call an antecedent river. It was there before the mountains. And that's what gives us these spectacular gaps and gorges through the mountains in places like Ohio Pile, where it's come, it's just come out of the Laurel Hill uprising and then drops into its cross section of Chestnut Ridge. So, uh, and below that, you know, it, it, it winds more erratically through the foothills. But that's, you know, that's kind of the fundament of the, the geology. Uh, there are a lot of other interesting things. The, there was once a giant glacial lake that flooded what's now the lower end of the Nakagani many, many, many years ago. Now, was the river, uh, is it navigable? Is it, was it used for commercial transportation? I mean, we know it's used for whitewater rafting and kayaking, uh, but was it used more for transportation at some point? No, it really wasn't very much. You know, George, no less than George Washington wanted to have a canal route along the Yakagani, but that never really came to be. In fact, he got to what's now a high pile and said, yeah, forget it, this is not gonna work. And so uh, it never really did open up too much in the commercial, you know, building realm, except the very bottom of the river, which is actually now flooded by an Army Corps of Engineer dam on the Monongahela, intending to make the Mon navigable to big industry barges, which it is. But uh, kind of as a spinoff of that, it also flooded up the lower few miles of the yacht. But that's just a minor amount. No, most of the... Uh, most of the boating there is white water and, and kind of quiet white water boating in, in many sections now from Maryland down through Pennsylvania. And since the river has cleaned up, been cleaned up quite a bit in its lower half, we're now seeing a lot of recreational boating on the gentler flows of the river from Connellsville down to McKeesport, something I didn't see much at all when I wrote my first edition of this book. 40 years ago. The changes that I've seen from that time to now were really fascinating to me. That's just one of them. Well, let's go back to that time. And, and uh, what was it that spurred you to write this book in the 1980s? So this goes way back for me. I mean, way back. My ancestors first went to the Yakageni and get this 1787. There were Revolutionary War grants for people who fought in the Revolutionary War, including my ancestors. And so they moved to a place called Jockey Hollow along the Yakageni, which is now flooded by Yakageni Dam above Connellsville. I mean, excuse me, above Confluence. And uh, so I've had relatives there ever since. Uh, they, the, uh, a branch of the family soon moved to what's now Ohio Pile. My great-grandfather actually built the big grain mill that still is there in Ohio Pile. It's now uh, used as a store for one of the big outfitters, uh, Mark McCarty, who has the company Laurel Highland River Tours. 
my great-grandfather built and owned and operated that as a real grain mill. And uh, my great-grandmother and he lived in a home that was torn down when the state park was started. But uh, throughout my youth, my grandmother lived there during summers and I would go and spend time at her house in the summertime and got to just run wild as this little kid in the Appalachian Mountains. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven with all that wild country to explore. And so many of my, the, the really formative uh, events of my youth, many of them occurred right there along the Yakagani River in Ohio Pile. So back to your question, the book, I had the, all that to draw from. And then uh, I studied landscape architecture. I became a land use planner. I worked on a lot of issues of rivers and water and river conservation and ultimately started writing about all these issues that I was working on and did my first book called Rivers of Pennsylvania. And then I wrote a book in California, but it was always in the back of my mind that the Yakagani was really the formative river of my youth. And it has this fascinating story to it. So I decided to write a book about it in, uh, let's see, 1982. Now, you uh, early in the book, you talk about seeking out the source of the river. Was that mapped out? At, you know, at some point, if you push far enough up, you're just dealing with small creeks and rivulets. What did you find and, and how did you find it? Well, yeah, I wanted to write about the whole river. And so source to mouth. So I set out to find the, 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 the uppermost spring where the river actually begins. And on a map, I could determine that, that was somewhere there on Backbone Mountain above a little uh, dammed up section of the river called Silver Lake. So I went out with, uh, with one of the characters that I wrote actually a great deal about, Jim Prothero. And Jim and I uh, found the last road accessible place along this little stream that becomes the Yakagani and bushwhacked up the mountain along it. And it got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just barely flowing at all. And then it trickled. And then we did find, in fact, the uppermost spring where the river began. A pretty nondescript place in uh, up there on Backbone Mountain in West Virginia. The uh, When I reflect back now, and, and actually when I went back to do the new edition of the book just the summer before last, um, to update the book by, by writing a new introduction and a new epilogue. The, uh, I, I went back to the Headwaters area, but um, to me a more fitting source, because a lot of people can get to it much easier, is Cathedral State Park in West Virginia. It's actually on Rhine Creek, a tributary, one of the uppermost tributaries to the Yacht. And uh, Ryan Creek is, you know, it's only six feet wide, but it meanders through the largest and most exquisite grove of virgin uncut hemlock trees in West Virginia. So it's a really good place for people to go if they want to see really the headwaters of the Yakagani. Now, in the book you, you write, which you're writing in the 1980s, you say, I had a vision of the Yakagani headwaters. They would be clean enough to drink. What I found were hundreds of acres that had been clear-cut 20 years before, which would have been the 1960s. Well, what was that like when you got up there and, and saw what, what the landscape looked like? 
Well, that, that does describe it when I wrote the original book in 1982 and 83. What was really interesting is going back for the update of the book, which just came out this year, and to look at the changes. And the most really, uh, I guess you'd say the most fundamental change throughout the basin is really very simple. The trees are bigger. This is what trees do, they grow. Trees, trees grow as long as we allow them to live. And so I went back and it, and it was actually uh, beautiful and kind of heartening to see many areas where 40 years ago or going back, you know, what is it now? Uh, I'm 75 years old. So going back over 50 years to my youth there, trees that were just kind of unimpressive, you know, like maybe three or four or six inches in diameter are now these massive big trees, two and three, four feet in diameter. Wonderful groves of tulip poplars, you know, just giant big trees that look like old growth ancient forest, although they're not really that old. So it, it, was, really, it was really rewarding and impressive to see where the forests have been protected that they have grown so much and that they look that they are now so magnificent. Of course, a very small percentage of the basin is protected as state parks, you know, less than 1%. So, um, you know, that's not the case elsewhere, but, but that was one of the really kind of beautiful changes that I saw. There were many other changes as well over the past 40 years. You mentioned Jim Prothero as your companion on that, that journey to the source. He, he does show up quite a bit in the book. Uh, who was he? Yeah, Jim was a, uh, he and I actually from the same hometown, Beaver, but we didn't really know each other then. Uh, Jim was a, became a river guide after college for a river outfitter called Mountain Streams and Trails. And he had an illustrious career then and uh, he became interested in, in paddling instruction and kind of really liked relating to people that way. And so Jim, when I went to write the first edition of the book in 1982, Jim was just starting his business called uh, River Path, which was a paddling instruction company. And, uh, and we immediately became good friends. And, you know, I went on trips with him and I went along with his kind of instruction classes just to paddle along and kind of help him out a little bit. So we, we became good friends in the process. And when I said I wanted to search out the headwaters, he immediately says, oh, I've always wanted to do that too. I'm in, let me, let me come with you. So, so Jim and I did that and other things together. And I, I did write about him. He, he was a very interesting character because like many others, Jim, how should I put this? Jim was searching. He was a searcher. He was hunting, always hunting for something a little bit better, a little bit different. And that's what brought him to Ohio Pile to launch a, a brand new career away from his family business in Beaver to be a river guide. I mean, how exciting is that? So he did that for, you know, for quite a few years and ultimately went back to the family business. But like, like others, he embodied, uh, I don't know, a very interesting, intriguing set of, of uh, contrasts in his personality. You know, he, 
he wanted to arrive someplace, but he also wanted to leave the the old place. He, you know, he was always kind of adapting and changing his way of regarding both the place and his business and his life. And all that made him very interesting to me. Unfortunately, Jim passed away a number of years ago, as have many of the people that I wrote about 40 years ago. You know, that's a long time for people who were adults back then. So um, it was kind of a bittersweet journey going back to write the new edition of the book, to write the epilogue, which brings much of the, the book, the important issues up to date, because um, a lot of the old people are gone. The, uh, in a very hopeful note, the children of some of those people are now uh, running the river companies and doing the businesses and living there along the river. Some of the people like my great pal, John Lichter is still there. And he and I went back and boated the river again together, just as we had done 40 years before. It's like we didn't skip a beat in our friendship. And the river fortunately from Ohio piled down had not changed either because of the protection of the state park. So even though John and I have been through massive changes in our lives constantly, it was really like going straight back in time to the friendship and to the river itself. And, and that actually is the final scene of the epilogue at the very, very end of the book, uh, where I describe this fabulous day of whitewater paddling that John and I did um, there again just last summer. Uh, talk a little bit about how the, the changes in economics affected the river. Uh, early on, the lumber industry, the coal industry uh, was, was very uh, active in that area. How did that shape and affect the river? Yeah, yeah. So, yes, the, uh, the Appalachians and especially the lower Yakagani were critical to the industrial development of Pittsburgh because coal was mined there and nearby. And... Connellsville, which is about the halfway point of the river and just downstream from the really popular whitewater sections, became the coke producing capital of the industry. To make steel, you need coke, which is baked from coal to process the steel. So, um, so it was, it was just a massive industry. It, it kind of, there were 30,000 Coke ovens where they baked this coal into a form that was usable for making steel. That, that phase all passed long before my lifetime. And, uh, you know, and those towns that had, had lived off that industrial boom were now bust, you know, and they became kind of like we would imagine hardcore Appalachia with the economic difficulties and the poverty and, and the massive out-migration of people that incurred there. And so, um, so early on, it was a bit, the lower river was a big industrial river. The upper river had a lot of mining, including coal mining by relatives of mine in Ohio pile and nearby. And uh, then uh, there was lingering coal mining and a lot of strip mining that came in in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And most of this was with very little regard for the river or the water quality or water supply or pollution or the future. So essentially the Yakagani became sterilized by acid mine drainage. 
the uh, the whole upper half of the river, many of the tributaries, just the, the day glow orange of acid mine drainage, uh, including a stream like, like Cucumber Run, which uh, has Cucumber Falls right in Ohio State Park. It's one of the most elegant waterfalls in Pennsylvania. But when I was a kid, it was just a polluted mess of day glow orange iron precipitate from the mines. So moving forward in the 60s, we began to regulate strip mining. Controls came slowly into place there. The mines that were continuing to function, you know, were, were somewhat better controlled and regulated. And then more recently, the downturn in coal mining uh, meant that a lot of those mines have closed. Meanwhile, there was a lot of interest from through the 70s and 80s and 90s and continuing today to uh, reclaim areas that were not reclaimed. You know, most of the mines in the old days were just abandoned and the owners gone. You can't even find them. So, you know, they took the profits and left us with a polluted mess, which taxpayers have now spent billions of dollars on trying to reclaim and bring back. And fortunately, fortunately, we have brought back a lot of those streams and a lot of those sections of the river where the Yakageni itself, when I wrote the first book in 40 years ago, there was really no good fishing along it. And, and now it's a kind of a trout fishing highlight of the Appalachians and people come from far around to fish for, for trout in the Yak below Yakageni Dam and, and, and above Connellsville. So, um, so what we have here is a case of, of flagrant disregard for the environment, a, a, a slow but steady progression toward more responsible resource use and management. A lot of interest and a lot of spending to reclaim places that were ruined. And now a river that is really a shining example of what can be done with diligent efforts to both get a grip on the kind of uh, mining that occurs and also to restore as much of, as possible of what has been lost. So to me, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a wonderful story of taking responsibility and enacting programs and policies and measures to uh, to restore a place of magnificent natural qualities so that we can enjoy them again and so that we have them for all the generations to come. Now, uh, somebody you mentioned very briefly in the book uh, is Aldo Leopold. Uh, who was he? You talk about a philosophy of conservation. Why, who was he and why, why was that philosophy important? Yeah, yeah, he, he was a wildlife biologist in the uh, 30s and 40s, and um, he kind of pioneered much of the idea of taking social responsibility for what we do to the land. He called it a land ethic, that we, you know, that we shouldn't just be exploiting everything for short-term gain. We should be actually treating the land with a sense of stewardship to recognize the values that it has and that it should continue to have for all the generations to come. So he was one of the early guiding lights of conservation uh, nationwide and actually worldwide. So it was interesting seeing how that became applied to the Yakageni. You know, we're just in my lifetime 
we went from this this amazing abuse by by mining and uh, you know into a, a realm of restoration and protection. Now, one of the key institutions in that was the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Uh, yes. What role did that play in, in starting to preserve some of, some of the lands and reclaim them? Yeah, yeah. The, the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy is one of the, the real heroes of this whole effort. The, um, they very early on, like in the 50s, which was early for their experience, recognized that Ohio Pile and the Yakagani were a very special place. There's actually, the river makes a loop there at Ohio Pile. Uh, we call it the, the, the loop. It's 1.6 miles that is a big horseshoe bend. And in that peninsula of land, um, the forests were logged many years ago, but not since about 1900. So it has been, it has reclaimed itself as essentially a, an old growth Appalachian forest. And way back in the 40s, that was recognized by pioneers with the Conservancy. And uh, they bought that and saved it from a 300-lot subdivision, an amusement park, and um, dedicated it for protection. And then they went forward and began looking upriver and downriver and recognized that this place was truly exceptional. It should become a state park. So they convinced leaders at the state and uh, a man named Maurice Goddard was then secretary of the Department of Environmental Resources. They convinced Dr. Goddard that Ohio Powell should be protected. Ultimately, it was made a state park. The Conservancy bought, Conservancy bought other lands nearby. The state then bought a lot of land in what's now a 20,000 acre state park. It's the largest state park in Pennsylvania in land area. Pymatuning is a little bigger, but most of that's flooded in a reservoir. Ohio Pile is the biggest in land area, and it's, I think, the fifth most popular and certainly the most popular in a rural area. So it became this magnificent state park, really on a par with a national park in many, many ways, and uh, all because of this initial work of the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Their role, excuse me, their, their role actually continued, and uh, the leader of the Conservancy into the 70s was a man named Josh Wetzel. And Josh had the foresight, the brilliant foresight, to recognize the value of the Western Maryland Railroad Line. At the time, there were railroads on both sides of the river, from Connellsville the whole way to Pittsburgh. Uh, excuse me, confluence the whole way to Pittsburgh. And Josh recognized that what a what an opportunity that right of way would be for public recreation when the Western Maryland Railroad abandoned their line. And he bought it. Uh, the Conservancy bought it in the section which is now High State Park. And later uh, later it became uh, it, it became part of the park. And the idea of a trail system gradually took hold there, starting at a high pile with use of that abandoned rail right of way as a bicycle and pedestrian trail. And eventually that idea uh, grew up and down river and through people like uh, Linda McKenna Box and the McKenna Foundation nearby in Ligonier and many others 
a, a long and very uh, involved effort led to the creation of the Great Allegheny Passage Bicycle Trail, which now runs nonstop as a bike trail from Pittsburgh the whole way to Cumberland, Maryland, much of that up the Yakagani River. In Cumberland, it ties in with the CNO National Canal, which is a bike trail now, the whole way to Washington, DC. So you can ride a bike on bike trail the whole way from Pittsburgh to Washington, DC, 350 miles. It's the longest bicycle trail of that type in America. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, one of the towns that, that sits in the area that you're talking about is Confluence. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about Confluence and, and what, what did you see there in the 80s when you were there and what have you seen there when you returned recently? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting too. So. Confluence is named because right there, the Yakageni is joined by the Castleman River. And just above that juncture, Laurel Hill Creek, which is a major tributary, flows into the Castleman. So it's a confluence or flowing together of these three streams. That's why they named the town what they did. It was also called Turkey Foot because these three rivers kind of look like the, a diagram of Turkey's Foot. But it's it's this it's this wonderful little Appalachian town there on the floodplain below the dam and uh, along the river. And when I wrote the book, you know, it was just kind of a sleepy little Appalachian burg, and there was not a whole lot of activity. And uh, so I came back forty years later, and um, you know, it's been discovered to a certain extent. There, a lot of the homes have been bought up by outside people who use them as vacation homes or vacation rentals. And uh, there's still a lot of local people who live there, but not as many. And, uh, you know, the homes are kind of spruced up a lot more. You know, they're, they're painted and there are new additions on them. There's a lot of that sort of thing. But still, the, 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 the old Appalachian character still persists, which I was glad to see. And, uh, you know, there are businesses along the river now that are serving as the new economy of the region as mining, you know, declined, recreation ascended. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, there's trout, guy, trout fishing guides that live there now and whitewater boating and the bike trail is a big economic boon to the area. The uh, a study actually, an economic study done of the bike trail found that it contributed to the local economy to the tune of $800,000 per mile. So, uh, you know, the bike trail alone, it's a big economic stimulus to the area and, uh, you know, all kind of, uh, you know, supporting little towns like Confluence and others. A big part of the story that, that you talk about in the book is the emergence of the whitewater uh, rafting and paddling industry. Uh, how did it emerge there? I mean, obviously there's whitewater there, but but how did the industry itself emerge? Well, yeah, the, I mean, the Yakagani, because of the geology that we talked about and the rivers cutting through those mountains as they rose up, there are a lot of rapids. And of course, the Ohio Falls, which is an 18-foot drop, 
it actually is the uh, the second largest big volume waterfall in the Appalachians. Only Cumberland Falls in Kentucky is a bigger flow and a higher drop. The uh, so there are a lot of rapids on the Yak, in particular at Ohio and upstream in Maryland. And very uh, gradually that became recognized by whitewater boaters starting in the 50s with pioneers of whitewater boating, including a couple of Pittsburghers, Gene and Sayer Rodman, a couple who rafted the first trip down the Yak uh, that, of, of the modern era, and uh, the first outfitter and Lance Martin, who had come there as a Boy Scout and then started rafting trips in the early 60s. And, um, you know, whitewater rafting became kind of, kind of a, kind of a big deal in the 1970s. The, you know, it was an exciting thing to do in the outdoors and, and takes you to these beautiful, amazing places. And so whitewater use grew and grew and grew and one outfitter grew to be four major outfitters and uh, their volume of use kind of seemed to be increasing with no end in sight in the 70s and then the 80s. But then something that no one uh, envisioned at all occurred, which is the whitewater use began to flatten out in the late 80s and then it began to decline. And it has continued to decline to this day. So that today, it's very curious, today the, uh, the amount of whitewater use on the Yaka is only about half of what it was shortly after I wrote the first edition of the book in 19, which came out in 1984. And um, so it kind of begs the question of why, you know, what happened here? And there, there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, one is simple de demographics that in the Pittsburgh area in particular, which is where a lot of the users come from, the uh, people went whitewater rafting and then they went again and again, but after maybe three or four times, a certain kind of feeling of been there, done that probably crept in. And so local people began to do that less. And the growth part of the industry then was dependent on young people getting older and people moving into the air, both of which occurred, but not nearly at the rate that people had originally been rushing there to experience the amazing whitewater. So that's just one reason. Another is that um, kind of the whole attitude, many of the outfitters re regard our attitude toward recreation as a little different today. People, they, they, they think that people don't want something quite as exciting as whitewater rafting in a lot of cases today. It, you know, it, it's kind of hard. And, you know, people are afraid they'll be cold. They're afraid they'll be wet. They don't want to get into a raft with strangers they don't know. These kind of things began to be more part of the public consciousness, which which they weren't in what 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 is regarded as kind of a more adventurous era of of American society, and so it kind of lost a little of its luster. Whitewater adventure lost a little bit of its luster, 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of beyond just going on a commercial trip. It's, it's kind of hard because you have to learn skills. And as many people point out, the attention span of America's has gone down in recent decades. And it, one, as one of the outfitters told me, he said, you know, we have an all-day river trip that's just fabulous. But people now don't really want so much an all-day trip. They want a half-day trip. Or maybe they even want a one-hour trip. Or some of them even just want a 10-minute trip, which, which I concluded is precisely a little, how long it takes to go down an urban water slide, counting waiting in line. So the attention span has decreased, you know, and people don't want to invest so much time and uh, psychic energy into this kind of adventure. So, you know, it lost a little bit of its appeal that way too. And of course, everything is so digital and electronic today, you know, and young people are, of course, obsessed by their phones and by constant communication. And, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a lot more of that and a lot less of outside physical activity and, and adventurous pursuits. So all of these things come into play, uh, causing the amount of what you used to decline. There's a good side to this trend, and that is that when I wrote the book, there were 80-person commercial trips launching every half hour. And in between were all the private boaters, the non-commercial boaters that wanted to go down the river, launching on the 15-minute. It was a mob scene. I mean, it was a really crowded, busy river. I have photos of it, you know, just boat jams where you couldn't eat. You had to wait in line to go through rapids. You pretty much don't have that anymore. Now you can kind of take your boat, go down a river, sign up, get your permit, pay your nominal fee, get on the water and have a great day of paddling without those kind of crowds and pressure. And, and in a way, it's like going back in time to before the river became what many of us considered to be overcrowded. So that's sort of a good thing. Another really interesting uh, related movement here is that when I wrote the first book, there was no bicycle trail along the river and along the railroad grade. Now there is, it's a wonderful facility. It appeals to just everybody. And there are actually far more bicyclists now in Ohio pile than there are whitewater paddlers. So while whitewater kind of de declined in popularity, biking use surged and continues to do so. Early on, as uh, some of the pioneers of whitewater paddling uh, were starting to come into that area, they, they ran into the challenge of how do you get to the river and some, some of the people who own the property there uh, express hostility towards these boaters. You, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, this is, this is not Ohio Pile. This is upstream of that in Maryland. In Ohio Pile, where, you know, where most of the whitewater activity is and, con and in confluence, um, the state park was started really prior to the revolution and boom in whitewater use. So paddlers then were dealing not with private landowners, but with the state park. That's a whole separate story. The park had to develop a whole new management paradigm to deal with whitewater use. Uh, never before encountered anywhere in the country. I mean, the, the park managers like Larry Adams, who 
was the park manager at the time, they crafted a, a program of management uh, just from scratch. And it was an amazing thing to watch and, and to, to follow, which I did in the book. But upstream in Maryland, uh, well, above confluence is Yakageni Dam and above the 17 mile long reservoir is the state line between Pennsylvania and Maryland, little town of Friendsville, and then a very wild eight mile section of over up to a bridge at a little stream called Sang Run. And between Sang Run and Friendsville are extreme whitewater rapids, bigger, much bigger, much more difficult than what we have at Ohio Pile. So as whitewater paddling became, uh, you know, more kind of ingrained in the culture, and as paddlers developed greater and greater skills, and as the kind of boat designs evolved in order to allow you to do harder and steeper and rockier rapids, this section of the yacht, Sangren to Friendsville, became a popular boating area. It was also severely limited because the only time there's enough flow there is when a hydroelectric plant upstream in Maryland at Deep Creek released water from their hydro dam to produce power. That gave enough water for floaters to do that eight mile section, but only in limited hours on limited days of the week. So to get to your question, at that time, the Sang Run site was privately owned, much of it still is, but at that point, all of it was. And, um, and we're kind of talking about backwoods Appalachia here and the people living along the river there had been doing so for all of their lives and their parents' lives, you know, generations there. And they didn't like these whitewater boaters coming around. They just didn't like it. They didn't understand them. It was kind of a different culture. The, uh, you know, it wasn't there, you know, they fished and stuff, but the, you know, they just didn't like boating at all. So they tried to keep boaters off of that land. And that was still the case when I wrote the first book. So I wanted to see this section of the river in order to write about it. So with a, an expert guide who I knew, Steve Martin, we went up there and at the time you couldn't use private land at all to get on the river. You had to use the bridge, which is public property, throw your raft off the bridge with a, with a rope on it, tie it to the bridge, climb down the pier of the bridge, jump into your boat and go. Hopefully before Rusty Thomas would show up with his shotgun. And so it was this kind of ridiculous scene, you know, boaters kind of uh, sneaking onto the river to evade the landowners who didn't want them there. Well, that was all still shaking out when I wrote the first version of the book. And there was a lot of conflict and really no, not much clue how it was gonna be resolved. But as it turns out, it was resolved quite fairly and congenially over the years. And even Rusty ended up leasing his land for a commercial outfitter eventually. Rusty has also passed away at this point, which I was very disappointed about. I wanted to go back and see him as well. But the, uh, you know, the, the Sang Run site was acquired, an organization called American Whitewater played a very strong role in getting the money and in, in working on that. 
and establishing a site where people, a public site where people, people could put their boats in. That became a state park. And uh, now there is whitewater boating, including commercial boating there at Sang Run with really no sign of the of the old conflict and hostility that you know that was quite remarkable back in the day one of the key features of the river is is the the dam that's run by the army corps of engineers upriver from confluence uh, talk about the history of that of that dam and and its significance for everything going on downriver yeah okay so so pittsburgh flooded you know historically there were like 100 floods between the founding of Fort Duquesne and the, uh, let's say the 1940s. And um, Pittsburghers going back to H.J. Hines himself, who chaired a committee on flood control, wanted to build dams upstream, but Pittsburgh couldn't pay for it. So it never happened. And then Pittsburgh flooded big time in 1936. And that caused a nationwide movement for federally backed and taxpayer paid for flood control dams across the United States. There were zero then, and now there are over 400 of them. And so the Corps, the Army Corps is kind of the flood control agency of the federal government. They studied the Yakagini watershed and they came up with 11 key dam sites that have all been built for flood control in Pittsburgh. The two big ones are Kinsua Dam on the, on the Allegheny River, where the entire Seneca Indian nation was booted off their reservation in a, with a treaty signed by George Washington and moved to upstate New York in spite of uh, their plea that another alternative site for flood storage be chosen, but it wasn't. So uh, Kinswood Dam was built on the Allegheny River, big reservoir, and Yakagani Dam was built on the Yak, actually before the Kinswood Dam, built in 1944. And, to, and it backed up water 17 miles into the state of Maryland. The dam's 187 feet high, major dam, provides for flood control for Pittsburgh and, and uh, incidentally also for water supply, for McKeesport, for Westmoreland County, for Con Connellsville, and uh, quite by coincidence also evens out the summer flow, so making it really good for whitewater recreation at, at Confluence and Ohio Pile. So the dam was built back then. It's since that time, Pittsburgh's been relatively protected from flood damage. And um, the uh, it's come close to filling up in 1993, actually, a, a rainstorm of 11 inches upstream caused the water in the reservoir to rise to within six feet of the spillway of the dam. The spillway is a place where water can flow over the dam, but not over the breast of the dam. It's a little bit lower than that because if it goes over the breast of the dam, the dam is seriously compromised. It's designed to flow over the spillway. We came within six feet of that in 1993. And uh, any flow over the spillway is a very serious flooding event because spillways can be damaged and destroyed and hazardous. And... Um, 
And now we're facing a climatic future where floods are getting bigger because storms are wetter and drenching us with more rain in the age of global warming. Because a warmer atmosphere holds more water causes more rainstorms, bigger rainstorms. So um, you know, it kind of raises the question of, of flooding dangers again. And uh, you know, anybody downstream would be wise to avoid building on the floodplain there, even with the dam that's there today. So as you go downstream from Ohio Pile and you get closer to the Monongahela, how does the river change? Well, the gradient decreases, you know, below high power, they are the, the last big rapids in this section between there and Connellsville. The, uh, the final of three dams is at Connellsville. It's a low dam about six feet high that backs up the water for the water supply outtakes. Uh, and at that point, you're exiting the Appalachian Mountains. You've come through the gap in Chestnut Ridge. You're now in the foothills of the Appalachians. So the gradient of the river is much less. It's just gentle, basically gentle flows and riffles for the most part after that for another uh, 60 or 70 miles to, to McKeesport. So the flow is gentler. Uh, there are a lot of little towns along the river. There are roads that cross and bridges more frequently. Uh, Another really interesting transition there, though, is that back, I mentioned the early industrial age with the Coke ovens and all that, the lower yacht was definitely an industrial corridor with a lot of big industry along the shores. That was pretty much all abandoned uh, many, many years ago. So today, almost this entire lower river corridor has been reclaimed at least somewhat by nature. So it's a greenway now. And with the bike trail especially, it's it's like this 60 mile long linear park with much cleaner water, with forests that are recovering with bigger trees. Now a bike trail so you can you can bicycle the whole way through it. It's become this incredible recreation attraction, which was once an industrial corridor. So, uh, you know, that's one of the really remarkable transition in the use of that river. The river is also much cleaner than it was. I mean, it was pathetic in my youth. And even when I wrote the first version of the book in 1982, my buddy, Mike McCarty and I paddled the length of the lower river the whole way into Pittsburgh. And there were a lot of little streams coming in, especially along all these little towns that had just raw sewage in them. You know, it was just gray, milky looking, stinking water coming into the river then. We didn't want to go swimming there or anything. And today, most of that is cleaned up, not all of it. A group called Mountain Watershed Association and its affiliated uh, Yakagini Riverkeeper are still working hard to resolve additional problems that remain there on the lower river from sewage and even more so from acid mine drainage. But um, the really egregious problems, you know, that really stunk to high heaven, it was pretty much gone now. And the water looks good, you know, you don't hesitate to swim or to jump in. So it's, it's again, another one of those great bright spots. Kind of uh, working in the other direction from this decline of mining and mine pollution is the fracking industry for natural gas. 
the uh, there is natural gas in much of the basin, and the lower part of the river in particular has seen a boom in fracking wells for methane gas. And uh, you know, you think we would have learned something from 200 years of polluting the rivers with coal mine acid, but we made many of the same mistakes now in the era of fracking, where massive amounts of water are taken out. Uh, because it's needed by that industry. There are a lot of toxic chemicals and polluted water that's that's forced into the wells to frack the, the geologic structures and get the gas out. This polluted water is then either re-injected or taken to sewage treatment plants, which are ill-equipped to deal with it, or in some cases just dumped back in streams. So um, you know, it presents a whole new set of challenges there to accompany this great sense of success and recovery that, that we've also seen. Talk about the the meaning of the word Yakagini. Uh, you mentioned that, that the earliest reference was a caption drawn on a map from 1737. What do we know about the word itself? Well, there were there were many, many spellings of it and, and different interpretations of the meaning from uh, the local natives language uh, the Indians that occupied the area originally, it, it means something to the effect of river flowing in a roundabout direction. As the uh, does wind around, you know, it flows mostly north, which not a whole lot of rivers do. And then in places like um, like Victoria Flats below confluence and the big loop at Ohio Pile, you know, it really curves around in kind of an extreme way. So you can definitely see how they would have had that name. But Fundamentally, it means river flowing in a roundabout direction or in, in big curves. Ohio Pile is like, it likely meant uh, something to the effect of white frothy water, which it definitely is at Ohio Pile and the, and the rapids below there. How did you become involved in uh, conservation? Well, that's a, uh, that goes way back too, Phil. The, uh, Like I said, I grew up visiting Ohio Pile. And so I still remember this so vividly. There was one summer night I was there. I was living at my grandmother's house, visiting her for like a couple of weeks or more, running free in the mountains, like I said. One night I wandered downstream from Ohio Pile to the big flat rocky, uh, rocky formations that are at entrance rapid, the first big rapid below the town. And I remember there late in the day, sitting down on the big slab of sandstone and leaning back against another rock and just watching that river flow. And it, it kind of, I became mesmerized in a sense by the flow of the water and the sound of it and the smell of the rhododendrons blooming behind me and um, I stayed there and essentially the rest of the world just disappeared for me. It could have been a hundred miles away. And I realized then eventually that this place was perfect. And even as a 12 year old, I, I realized and knew why it was perfect. It was perfect for the simple reason that it was left alone. It was natural. And that kind of awareness, that kind of knowledge, 
kind of seeped into me in a very deep way and 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 stayed with me. And um, I became interested in rivers. I became interested in the environment. Uh, I went to Penn State. I studied landscape architecture. I ran the first Earth Day there. And when I graduated, I got a job in planning, uh, which included river conservation work and eventually writing about rivers as well. But so much of it goes back to that night as a 12-year-old right on the banks of the Yakageni there at a place that for me is very appropriately named Entrance Rapid because it was there that I first realized just how important the natural world is to us, to all of us. And, and I took that awareness with me along to the rest of my life to this day. Well, we've been speaking with Tim Palmer. He's the author of Yakagani, Appalachian River. Tim, thanks for speaking with me. It's really great to be with you here. Thank you so much. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.